This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. Welcome to Software Engineering Radio. My guest is June Rao. He's a software engineer and researcher, formerly of LinkedIn, who is uh, embarking on starting a company um, that is largely based on the Apache Kafka project. Um, he's a researcher and developer who has spent much of his time researching MapReduce, scalable databases, query processing, and other facets of the data warehouse. And for the past three years, he's been a committer to the Apache Kafka project, which will be a focus of our discussion. So, Jun Rao, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. So to get started, let's talk about a couple of definitions. So how would you define streaming and how would you define messaging? Yeah, that's a good question. So streaming, based on sort of my view of it, historically has been mostly referring to systems or frameworks that provides the capability of processing one or more sequence of infinite events. So uh, those frameworks typically provide things like the ability of plug-in customized logic for processing those events. You can do things like filtering, win window-based aggregation, or string-based joins. That framework typically also provides things like uh, parallelism. Uh, it will parallelize the events for you. You don't have to worry too much about it. And those frameworks typically also cover things like uh, fault tolerance. So if one of the processing unit is down, uh, you don't have to worry about it because the framework can restart the process in some other machines for you. So this is uh, sort of my view of what this uh, stream processing system uh, refers to. So based on that definition, things like Apache Storm uh, and Apache Spark, and uh, there's another system that uh, has been built at linking called Apache Samza falls into this category. These are the system that provides a framework for processing sort of sequence of infinite uh, events. Now, one of the things those systems have to worry about is where do they get the data? That's where the messaging system comes in. So, um, uh, one of the key ways for those uh, stream processing systems to get data from is from a messaging system or a popsis system. So if you, like, if you look at Apache Storm, the most popular way for you to get data is from Apache Kafka, which is a messaging system. And uh, uh, there's the integration with Kafka in other streaming systems like uh, Spark and Samza as well. So that's sort of what I view as the difference or the relationship between streaming and the messaging system. So another sort of a analogy if you want to map that to the Hadoop world. The Hadoop part has two systems, right? One is the MapReduce part, which is really the processing framework um, of those offline data. And then there's HDFS, which is the storage and the delivery mechanism of those data. And these two systems are coupled together in a loose way, 
to provide this uh, offline computation framework. And you can view sort of this uh, streaming processing system as the equivalent of MapReduce, but uh, more in the real-time world. And the messaging system like Kafka are sort of the equivalent or the counterpart of HDFS, but again, it's for the real-time world. So that's interesting that you kind of describe it as um, the Kafka and and Storm projects is sort of being an unbundling of things that are are frequently found together, or so, or in other domains found together. Um, so and and I guess let's talk a little bit more about specifically what Apache Kafka is. The the summary that I found is. Um, a published subscribe messaging system rethought as a distributed commit log. So what do you think of this definition and why, why is it useful to draw an analogy between messaging and a distributed commit log? Yeah, so yeah, it is true. I think Kafka at a high level the definition is really a sort of messaging or pop-stop system. So the line between messaging system and pop-stop system is a little bit blur blurred these days. Traditionally, a messaging system has been mostly referring to systems where you sort of do this point-to-point -point message delivery, right? So message is published from one place and it's delivered to another one. And if you look at another, uh, and if you look at uh, the pop sub world, there I think the analogy is. Um, uh, the difference is messages uh, can be consumed multiple times, potentially by multiple by different consumers. So, but these days I think the line is blurred because a lot of systems can support both. Now, why is the why do we draw the analogy between a messaging system and a commit log? So there, I think there are two things. One is at a very high level, both messaging systems and a commit log are dealing with sort of a sequence of uh, append-only data. So the access tab pattern is pretty simple. Um, to write the data into those systems, you just keep appending new data into your system. There's typically no updates. You just keep adding new things. The way you read it is also pretty simple. Typically, you just uh, read those data sequentially. Now, because of such simplicity, it comes a lot of benefit. Basically, you can implement this system in a very efficient way in terms of scalability, reliability, and performance. So that's the first sort of analogy. The second thing is, um, so I came from the database background. So if you look inside a database system, right, most of databases has a commit log. Now, that commit log is actually the source of truth of all the data you store uh, in a database. Uh, even though not, it may not be kept forever, but that's actually where the initial data comes in, and from that you can derive all the other data you you have in the database systems, like data you store in a table, data store you store in the in the index. So this is also true for messaging system. If you think about all the consumers or the downstream uh, applications that get data from a messaging system. Messaging system, in some sense, serves as the source of truth for all those downstream systems. So that's sort of the second analogy between a messaging system and a commit log. Okay, and so um, how does Kafka compare to 
more traditional messaging systems like ActiveMQ or RabbitMQ? Yeah, that's also a good question. That's a question that we got a lot. I would summarize uh, there are two key differences. Um, one, uh, these are sort of a, these are the differences where Kafka has a little bit of advantage. So one is Kafka is really designed for high volume data. Uh, if you look at traditional messaging systems, those systems typically are only responsible for storing data that's uh, generated in the database. But if you look at Kafka, it's really designed for it's really designed for systems. It's really designed for it's really designed for storing data such as business metrics, service logs, operational metrics, and those data in terms of volume is easily a hundred times or a thousand times bigger than the data you store in a database. And it's not something traditional messaging systems are designed for. And Kafka is really designed for those. For example, Kafka is designed as a distributed system uh, from ground up. So if the volume of data increases, we can just easily add more machines into the cluster to handle that volume of data. And there are quite a few optimizations in various components uh, where we do batching and compression so that we can handle this volume of data more efficiently. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So it's so kind of looking at the size of the pipe from the ground up that, that you need. That's right. And saying we, we need we need something that's just just way bigger than something like ActiveMQ or RabbitMQ. Offers. That's right. So you can think of it as a like a big data version of the uh, of the messaging systems. So that's the first difference. The second difference, which is also important, um, is traditional messaging systems are really designed for, or and only for, sort of real-time use cases. But for the Kafka use cases, we not only have the more real-time use cases, but an important consumer uh, or downstream application of Kafka is to feed data into those offline pipelines. So one of the most important ones, of course, is Hadoop. A lot of people are using Kafka to get data into the Hadoop system. So, uh, so in that case, what we have is system that you need to handle both the sort of real-time use case as well as the non-real-time or the batch-oriented use cases. Um, a lot of traditional messaging systems, because they really optimize for the real-time use case, they do things like buffering all the messages or unconsumed messages in memory. So now imagine if you have a downstream consumer uh, like Hadoop that's under maintenance for a couple of hours, right? Then you may not be able to buffer all those data in your message broker for that long. So would you... And, oh, sorry, go ahead. And because of that, um, for a lot of the offline consumer use cases, a lot of traditional messaging systems, the performance uh, falls way short of Kafka. So would you describe Kafka as a uh, a data warehouse messaging system? Um, or is that too narrow of a definition? Um, I think, yeah, you can, you can sort of, as a, yeah, I think it is a sort of a warehouse of data. You can think of it as warehouse data. But it's really a, a place where you can collect all types of data 
and you can feed that into different platforms. One important platform uh, uh, pipe is to feed that into the sort of warehouse or the offline system, but you can equally use the same system to feed data into a more real-time platform. So it's a sort of an integration point for both the offline and uh, more real-time consumption. Okay, that's great. So now that we have sort of a, a framework of an idea for our listeners for um, what Kafka is, let's talk a bit about the basic vocabulary of Kafka and kind of drill down into how it works. So maybe you could talk about how some of the central uh, components work. So could you maybe talk a bit about topics and producers and consumers and brokers? Yeah. So at the very high level, Kafka has uh, is very similar to um, traditional messaging systems. It has this uh, three-tier uh, concept. In the middle, we have this broker layer. This is actually where messages are stored uh, and served. And of course, we have the producer tier. These actually are the publishers of the messages. And we have the consumers. These are the system that make subscription of one or more of those uh, feed of data and uh, the data just get delivered to those consumers. So these are at a very high level sort of three layers of entities around the Kafka. Now, topics are essentially the unit of, uh, the logical unit of defining individual feeds. Uh, you can think of each topic corresponds to like a virtual queue. Um, and when you publish messages, of course, you publish a message to a topic. So then your data is added into one of those virtual queues. And when you consume a message, uh, consume data, you typically subscribe to one or more of those topics. So then all those data stored in those uh, corresponding virtual queue or virtual channel will get fed into your system. Um, there is also this low-level uh, concept called partitions, which is associated with topic. Now, each topic um, physically can have one or more partitions. And the reason we have this partition is really for parallelism. So the more uh, you can think of uh, like a, a virtual channel physically divided into multiple uh, physical queues or channels, and those those sub-queues or sub-channels can be stored independently on different machines and uh, that's a way of uh, getting more parallelism uh, out of our system. And when you say parallelism, do you also mean like redundancy or, or fault tolerance or is it, or is it mostly just to, to speed things up? I think it, has, it mostly has to do with uh, speeding things up. Um, so logically, Different partitions can be sort of consumed independently, and uh, whether you replicate those uh, data or not. Right. So the more partitions you have in terms of both the producer and the client, sort of the more parallel channels you can have. Uh, so that is a way of increasing the degree of parallelism. Now each of the partition can be further replicated, and uh, that uh, is a way. That, uh, that we can use to provide a reliability of the system, but it's not related to what we uh, have in terms of parallelism. 
so messaging typically has two models. Um, at least you know there's there are two that you could discuss: queuing and pub sub, publish subscribe. And with queuing, you have a pool of consumers that read from a server, and each message goes to only one consumer. So in queuing, maybe you have like a list of tasks that the server needs accomplished just once, uh, and it just has consumers that are you know you know receiving. Uh, each of those tasks. And then in PubSub, the message is broadcast to all consumers. Um, so Kafka has a single consumer abstraction called a consumer group that generalizes both of these. Could you talk a bit about consumer groups and, and how and why they were conceived? Yeah, certainly. I think consumer group, yeah, it's pretty interesting. So as you said, it actually covers sort of both use patterns. In one case, what you can have is you can have just a single consumer group, and in that group you can have multiple consumers. And what they do is they sort of jointly consume one or more of the topics. So, for example, so you have like a two consumers in the same consumer group, then a topics data will be hopefully evenly divided half and half between these two consumers. So that's sort of a way of uh, increase the degree of uh, parallelism in the consumer, in a lot of use cases where the logic in the consumer can be a little bit uh, CPU intensive or time consuming. Of course, if you have more degree of parallelism, then you can use more CPU power and other resources to speed up the processing of the data. So that's one use case. Another use case, of course, is you can have multiple consumer groups on the same topic. And this is sort of the multi-subscription model. And in that case, each consumer group will get a complete feed of all the data in the topic. So this is actually intended for, uh, there are just lots of uh, applications. They want to consume the same data, but they just want to process them in a slightly different way or for different applications. And this multi-subscription model is a very powerful way for those applications to sort of consume those data independent of each other. And you can actually have, for, even for multiple consumer groups, within each consumer group, you can still have those multiple consumers. So you sort of can combine the benefit of the multi-subscription and uh, the degree of parallelism within each instance of the consumption. So that's how we sort of combine uh, both concepts into this consumer group. And what other facets about the relationship between producers and consumers are unique to Kafka? Uh, yeah, in terms of, yeah, I think actually uh, one, uh, a good question. I think one of the things if uh, we compare, if you compare Kafka with traditional messaging systems, uh, one of the things we don't have is some of the um, more traditional messaging APIs, such as like the GMS, uh, GMS has like a rich set of features in terms of like order delivery, priority, this kind of stuff. Uh, that we don't have in Kafka. As I said earlier, Kafka is really designed for high volume of data and uh, for dealing data uh, in an efficient way. So, but we don't have a lot of features that's existing in traditional messaging systems. And so, does this does this lead to some trade offs where there are s sort of like explicit use cases where Kafka just doesn't really make sense as your messaging system of choice? Uh, 
Right. So it depends on your application. Uh, on the one hand, Kafka does support some uh, basic uh, features that a lot of applications uh, want to have, such as the guaranteed delivery. You know, there is a like a producer side API allows you to configure when you can get an acknowledgement when you publish a message. Um, different ways of acknowledging gives you different guarantees on durability. Uh, that actually a lot of uh, a lot of the users are using for the applications. Now, uh, what we don't have is some other things like uh, the order the priorities, order to deliver uh, like uh, various uh, out of order delivering. So if you have requirements of that, then either you have to implement in your application, or yeah, you just have to use some other messaging systems that gives you these capabilities. So talking more broadly or, or historically, there have been a lot of platforms um, over the the last few years. Um, you know, we've we've mentioned some of them so far. So what do you think are the factors that are driving the emergence of this important technology and 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 sort of like like where you know you're kind of at the forefront of developing this kind of stuff so um what do you see changing in the future and how do you see uh like what evolution of this domain do you see yeah that's also an interesting question so i see there are two important factors that have changed uh, one is sort of the volume or the type of data that people are collecting. Um, historically, most of the data people that are of interest um, are just database data. But in the last 10 or 15 years, people started collecting so other those what we call big data. So what are those data? These are data such as business metrics. These are like the page views, impressions, clicks, search keywords people typed in. This also include operational metrics or the GMX, IO stats, CPU stats. This also includes all the service logs um, like GM, uh, like log4j logs, syslogs, or maybe some other service calls. Now in terms of volume of data, these data is easily uh, two to three orders magnitude bigger than the data stored in traditional database systems. In terms of value, you know, these data provide a lot of insights that's actually valuable for lots of downstream applications. So that's trend number one. The second thing, which is also related, is um, which is the question of why people are only starting to collect this data sort of more recently instead of like uh, uh, 15 or 20 years ago. This actually has to do with another trend, which is the emergence of a lot of uh, scalable, specialized vertical systems. Uh, so if you like Hadoop, Hadoop is a, is a specialized scalable system for doing offline processing. Traditional, a lot of the things, you, uh, you, the only place you can do this kind of stuff is in Oracle or Teradata, which is expensive. But what Hadoop did is very special. They basically take just take one aspect of it, which is offline processing of the system, and made it more scalable on commodity hardware. As a result, they can provide an offline processing solution in a more economical way. And because of that, people actually can now afford to store this large volume of data 
if they want to do offline processing in Hadoop. They don't have to buy those expensive Oracle or Terabyte instances. So this kind of trend is not only happening in the offline world, but it's actually starting to happen in many other vertical specialized domains. So if you look at a search, there is the Alexa search that's doing the sort of scalable version uh, on commodity hardware in the search domain. And if you looked at uh, uh, key value stores, right, there are lots of uh, systems that are, provides the capability of storing and retrieving like point data in, in a scalable and economical way on commodity hardware. And if you look at, there are lots of like graph engines. Those are like systems that can do graph processing, but again, on sort of commodity hardware in, the, in an economical way. There are lots of like a streaming system that also is are designed to be designed on commodity hardware that you can scale in a more economical way. And do you think that the, the, the big cost of storing this kind of data is, is sort of trending towards the fact that you have to maintain it as opposed to, uh, you know, whether or not you can afford to store it? Yeah, I think uh, both aspects, aspects are important. The first, of course, is the upfront cost, right? How much does it cost for you to acquire the software and the corresponding hardware? That, of course, if, you, if your software is like free, like open source, and your hardware is, uh, can run or depend, only depend on commodity hardware, then it's going to be a lot cheaper than uh, you have to pay a premium on proprietary software and you have to pay a high premium on expensive storage uh, boxes, in other words, just uh, commodity boxes with large uh, local SATA drives. That's, so that's the first aspect of it. The second thing, of course, once you have your system in place, you have to operate that, right? So there, of course, um, the, uh, the, the, more ins the more instances or the larger the cluster you have, the potentially the more overhead of uh, monitoring or of uh, operationalizing it. So there, I think that a lot of tooling would definitely help. Um, if you have a lot of uh, tooling and monitoring in place, then it doesn't really matter whether you are monitoring a cluster of 10 nodes or a cluster of like 100 nodes because a lot of things can just be integrated together with the right alert and uh, uh, monitoring set in place. So that will certainly help to drive down the operational cost of those systems. Okay, so let's, let's get back to talking a little more about um, Kafka specifically. So maybe you could describe a... Um, in, you know, I, I know you've you've touched on some uh, some more abstract examples of of Kafka, but maybe you could talk about um, a more specific use case when where somebody would want to deploy Kafka and sort of describe how they would uh, go about you know deploying it and um, connecting the different components. Right. So uh, at a high level, uh, this is sort of goes back to the changes of. Uh, of industry trend I mentioned a little bit earlier. So because of those uh, existence or the emergence of those very specialized sort of scalable systems, so a lot of those systems, if you look at those, they need to, uh, they need to be fed with the same type of data. 
for example, if you have a collection of log data, right? Of course, you want to feed that data into Hadoop for offline processing. But equally important, you probably want to feed that data into your search system so that you can search any of the uh, log occurrence quickly. That's a lot of the business what Splunk does, right? And equally, if you have, for example, uh, a stream of like operational data, of course, you want to feed that into your offline system, but you probably want to feed that into some of your real-time monitoring system so they can monitor and graph those data. So, um, so the question is, where do all those independent systems get their data from? So you sort of need like an integration point that uh, where all those systems can get its data from. Now, uh, a lot of those systems uh, are actually unlike Hadoop, they are actually more real-time. So you can't really just integrate that in your warehouse or offline system because in terms of latency, these systems may not be good enough to provide data feed to some of the more real-time applications or frameworks, such as real-time search and graphing. So Kafka sort of feels in that role because it's a system actually designed for collecting and storing high volume of data it actually can provide feed to any number of downstream applications. And those, those applications can be sort of more real-time, but those systems can also be offline. So you can sort of it as an like integration hub for all this big data. Now, in terms of uh, Kafka adoption, what we have seen, of course, is people are picking up sort of various pieces. Um, one common use case, of course, is... People are using Kafka as this uh, ingestion pipeline to get data into Hadoop. But at the same time, they also have an application, one or more of the application for real-time use case, you know, be it uh, a specialized real-time application or some of the streaming processing framework they are adopting or some of the real-time uh, search system they are adopting. So, uh, so because of those uh, need of more than one application of the same data. So Kafka sort of is very important for them to get those various pipelines working. So that's one of the common patterns we see Kafka gets adopted. Has there been any have there been any implementations you've you've seen that have like really surprised you and maybe uh, ended up maybe even changing the direction of, of the project or uh, you know uh, sort of introduced a, a reason for adding some new features you wouldn't have predicted? Well, I think so far, I think uh, there are lots of features that uh, we know are required as Kafka gets more, uh, more and more adopted. Uh, things like uh, security, uh, which is important. Um, and uh, in that domain, we don't see too many like surprises in terms of like, future feature requirements. We are sort of surprised Occasionally, just the way people are using the system, uh, you know, there, are, there are a lot of things that we sort of uh, didn't plan to have people use it in that way, but you know, people use it, um, use it in any way. Some of, sometimes it's, um, it's not really sort of ideal use case, and sometimes it's just, we're surprised that Kafka actually works uh, when people use it that way. For example, uh, one of the things we are surprised, you know, there are lots of there are at least one uh, use case that are using Kafka sort of as a 
uh, message delivering mechanism. And the way they send messages, you know, each message is uh, is sort of gigantic. Those are like a, each message can be a gigabyte. Of course, uh, uh, you can configure Kafka to do things like that, but it's certainly not something that we really designed it for. Um, but we're just surprised that you know people are using it, and then sort of worked uh, in this uh, limited context. There are other use cases like people are sort of trying to use Kafka more like a key value store, you know, where they just uh, sort of randomly consume messages from different uh, places. Uh, that also sort of a, sort of can work, but it's not really something that Kafka is really designed for. Uh, so that I would say. Um, architecture-wise, if you have a use case like that, probably a key value store is uh, more appropriate for those use cases. Yeah, that's really surprising. That sounds like the type of thing where it's, you know, you have somebody with a hammer and everything looks like a nail. That's right. So in the, in the 2011 paper about Kafka, there is a distinction that is made between application data and log data. Um, and so this distinction has become less clear over time. Do you think Kafka is still viewed as a log record messaging tool, or and you know is is it is it less acceptable now compared to three years ago if some of the log records are dropped? Yeah. So uh, one of the things we have seen, of course, you know, the way Kafka get adopted typically starts from people putting in log data. Um, and that's actually what Kafka is really designed for, and it's a powerful way to store and uh, serve this kind of large volume of data. And arguably, maybe for log data, you can argue maybe um, it's okay to lose a few messages uh, from time to time. But over time, of course, what people want to have is once you have a pipeline that can serve high volume of data, Right. Then people would think, oh, why can't we move all the data, including some of the more application or maybe database data, into this pipeline? So then uh, for those data, of course, uh, those are more important data than log data. Um, some of the durability and reliability guarantees will be stronger. So that's one aspect of it. Um, another thing is... Um, when you publish data to Kafka, uh, one of the things you can do is sort of do this uh, semantic partitioning instead of just a random distribution. So for some applications, maybe what you want to have is, for example, all the messages associated with like a particular uh, like user ID, right? You want that to be consumed by one consumer. So the most convenient way you can do that is to partition the messages by this partitioning key, which can be the user ID, then you guarantee all the messages belonging to the same user ID will show up in one partition, and as a result, will be consumed by only one consumer. Now, to do things like that, um, it actually requires each of the partition to be made highly reliable and available, right? Because uh, now, if imagine if uh, one of the uh, partition is offline. Right? Now you have a message semantically based on the key. It has to go to that partition. If that partition is not available, what would you do? You know, you probably have to drop it. Or if you map it to a different partition, then essentially that changed the meaning of your semantics, uh, which may not be ideal either. So that's why 
for those cases, um, reliability and durability is actually equally important you know, when you have even just log data. So for that, uh, in the last couple of years, we actually have spent a significant amount of time on Kafka just to add the reliability and durability support in Kafka. So what we did is, uh, for each partition of Kafka, you can have multiple replicas. And when you publish a message, a message will be redundantly stored on multiple replicas, uh, typically in different brokers. Then, uh, if any of the broker fails, there's a logic in Kafka that allows the system to continuously function in, uh, when there are individual broker failures. So from the end user's perspective, both the producer and consumer, uh, it's as if nothing has happened uh, because the underlying systems will route the connection from the client to the alive brokers that has the same copy of the data. Is so that's actually one of the things, important things we added in Kafka. Is this performed by Zookeeper? Um, yes, I think uh, the way this works is um, we use Zookeeper for storing some important state information per partition. In terms of the amount of data, it's not a lot. There's only like a uh, maybe a few bytes of information that we need to store per topic partition. And what we store there are critical information as who is the leader of a partition. Uh, I think in the world of, of replication, typically you will have multiple replicas associated with a partition. One of them is designated, designated as the leader, uh, which takes all the rights, and uh, the other replicas are followers, which just takes data from the leader. So when the leader fails, of course, you need to be able to quickly elect a new leader um, and, uh, and then continue serving data uh, from the new leader. So we rely on Zookeeper to store information like who is the current leader of a partition and who, and equally important, who, ca who are the correct or possible candidates for becoming a new leader had the original leader fails. Right, and it, it, what's interesting is it, it seems like the the ability to just, uh, I guess, offload a, a, or well, I'm I'm not sure how much um, energy is is offloaded onto Zookeeper, but you know, it sounds like a significant amount, um, and it makes me think back to the uh, what you said earlier on in the conversation about how you know the Kafka is analogous to uh, you know if you look at Kafka and Storm. It, it's uh, analogous to unbundled components of Hadoop, and it, it, it makes me think it's, it's interesting that you know you, you you have Zookeeper that's essentially just like a Lego block that you just are, is is you know now a central component of Kafka, and so all that makes me think about um, what are like can you conceive of future type of uh, components, maybe open source or not, uh, that would be built on top of Kafka? Yeah, so that is, uh, is a good point. I think for now, Kafka, you can think of it as a, like a, a place where 
a feed of data is provided. And you know, given the sort of reliability and durability guarantees we have, it, it is possible for people to store like the source of truth data in Kafka. Now, uh, in some sense, you can view it as sort of the commit log in the database world. Now, from the source of truth of data, there are lots of uh, systems that you can potentially build on top of it um, to, uh, to get a feed of data and then sort of uh, convert data into a format that's easier for processing for a particular vertical domain. Um, so there has been systems, um, for example, in the key value store domain where it relies upon sort of a distributed commit log as the central piece for storing and recovering data. Um, now, uh, we haven't tried this in Kafka, but it is possible for someone to take Kafka and then use it as sort of, sort of a commit log as a source of truth and build other surrounding systems like uh, maybe another key value store or other uh, storage systems around it. Okay, interesting. So um, to to go back to um, a little bit more about the uh, the pub sub model, um, because I I see that as as uh, you know, fairly important to this discussion, and I um, you know I'd like to just uh, maybe even if this involves you know rehashing some stuff that uh, has already been discussed, um, I think it, it it'd be worthwhile. So. Coming back to the the topic of um, of of PubSub, so each topic is analogous uh, to a published channel in the PubSub model, and you know as I understand, each of these topics has one or more partitions, which is a block of memory that is allocated to it where new messages are appended, and at any given time, you have each subscriber to a topic that has consumed up to some point on that partition. Um, would you describe that as, do you think that's a, an accurate description of how partitions and, uh, and, and channels work? Yeah, that's actually, uh, uh, it's not 100% accurate. Actually, one of the things what we do in Kafka is, uh, remember earlier, I think Kafka is really designed to optimize for both the sort of a, real-time uh, consumption as well as the offline consumption. So one of the things that requires us to think about is uh, in terms of buffering messages. So if you buffer like all the unconsumed messages in memory, of course, that just limits uh, how, uh, how offline uh, applications you can support, right? Because memory is limited, you can't essentially buffer everything if a consumer is gone for a long time. So what we do in the broker is we, uh, we don't actually allocate uh, a lot of uh, heap space for storing messages. So every time we get a message or a set of messages from the producer, we simply just append it to the corresponding file channel on the local disk. Of course, we don't flush data immediately for better performance, we sort of flush data in those file channel to disk uh, only periodically. But uh, we don't really keep a copy in the JVM heap space. We actually immediately 
just uh, put the data into the file system. But most of the time, file system has its own page cache, so chances are those uh, data are still in, in memory, but just in the page cache managed by the file system for us. It's just that we don't have to manage that in the JVM heap space, which is a lot better for GC tuning and other things. Now, in terms of uh, consumer, we do the same thing. We do similar things. Uh, we use the sort of Unix Sandfire API to send data from a local file channel to a remote socket directly. Again, in, from the consumer's perspective, we don't have to take any heap space by first copying the data from the file channel into an application space, then copying the data from the application space into the remote socket. We sort of uh, rely on the operating system to do, us, to do this for us more efficiently. So because of that, um, Kafka, at least the broker, is actually very efficient in terms of uh, JVM heap memory usage. Typically, we don't require a lot of heap space, and uh, we only need sort of a limited uh, kind of tuning for uh, GC, GC management because we don't have a lot of uh, permanent space that's taken by the JVM heap. A lot of the memory consumption are like transient per request. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, and let's talk about um, a, another uh, aspect of, of um, I guess, distributed systems in general and how it um, pertains to Kafka specifically. Um, so I'd like to talk about durability. So are, are messages recoverable across restarts and failures? Right. So... Um, that, yeah, so, so there are different uh, uh, like failures. Uh, on the broker side, um, as I mentioned earlier, we added this uh, replication support. Uh, so within a single cluster, messages can be redundantly stored on multiple brokers. So now, uh, if one and, and, and real quick is, would you say a broker is is synonymous with uh, a a topic partition? A broker is actually think of like a, uh, yeah, just like a, a server or a node where multiple partitions data can be stored upon. Okay. Okay. So it's sort of like a engine where we store those messages, and in the cluster you can have multiple those uh, uh, storage engines, but the topic partitions or the replicas they are sort of spread around into those uh, storage engines. And each storage engine or broker can store typically stores multiple partitions. Got it. Partitions from different topics. That's right. Of course, each partition typically corresponds to a local file directory, uh, and uh, sort of takes its uh, has its own uh, set of files from other topics. So there's going to be isolation at the disk level. Now, in terms of uh, Reliability, if you configure a topic to have multiple replicas, then uh, we can, the broker on the broker side, it can tolerate broker failures. Um, the common failure in the Kafka class, of course, is uh, those we call you know, soft failure. Uh, the brokers actually are healthy. You just want to deploy new code or make new config changes, 
because of that, you have to bring uh, one or maybe a, uh, each of the broker in the cluster down and then restart them. So that's actually maybe 80% or maybe 90% of the failure cases um, in a Kafka cluster. So uh, with replication, of course, we can handle this kind of failure very effectively. Um, we have the logic to automatically just fire over the leader of each of the partition to another replica and uh, all the clients will just behave seamlessly in these cases. So it sounds like it's not really within the spec of Kafka to backup messages to a durable store. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, actually, uh, that's sort of a orthogonal. Yeah, so this, uh, yeah, the replication really uh, deals with for message, you know, where we store those and uh, how we keep, make sure we keep them uh, in sync among those different replicas. Then a second issue, which is of sort of what you are pointing out, is how long do we keep a message around in, in the Kafka cluster? So that, which this is also a little bit unique with Kafka, is the retention of a message is actually not driven by consumption, as in typical messaging systems, in the sense that a message is not like deleted from the Kafka once all the consumers have finished consuming of this message. Rather, messages are retained based on a retention policy. And that policy can be driven by time. Uh, you can, for example, keep the messages for like uh, seven days or maybe uh, a month, whatever uh, uh, you feel that you need those for. And it, of course, can also be retained based on um, sizes. So you maybe you want to keep uh, like a, let's say, uh, a terabytes of data right around. So the uh, one of the important aspects with this kind of retention is is actually a pretty useful feature. Um, what it gives you is what we call the rewindability from the consumers, in the sense that a consumer after finished consuming a message, if it wants to it actually can consume the message again as long as that message is, is still within the retention window. The, uh, there, there, there are some use cases of this. I think one important use case is this can deal with like application error or logic error very effectively. So imagine like you have an application that consumes a feed of data from Kafka and do things like uh, standardization, right? You standardize each of the uh, data um, and into some canonical format. But let's say at some point you push some new software and you had like a serious bug. Uh, and you realize that only a bit later, maybe an hour into it, you say, oh, all the uh, data that process in the last hour is, is not usable because, uh, because of the bug. So now what do you do? So uh, with this uh, sort of a retention policy, what you can do is you can actually rewind the consumption of uh, your messages from like an hour or maybe two hours ago, uh, the point where the bucky code is introduced. As long as those messages are still retained there, you can actually just uh, reapply the new logic, which assume, you know, presumably have fixed that bug, and just run through those same data again. Then you can recover 
uh, all the you can, you can correct all the mistakes you have made on the previous computation logic. That sounds like a super important feature. That's right. So that's something that uh, not all the traditional messages provide, and uh, right, we the realize ability to go back in time. That's right. The ability to reconsume some of the messages um, uh, over time and. Uh, Fixing application logic is one of the important use cases for this. Cool. So um, one of the uh, words that we we hear a lot on on this podcast is the word microservice. So what is what does the word microservice uh, mean to you? And is that is that uh, something that's uh, appropriate to uh, this conversation? As uh, you know, as what Kafka is and and what it provides. Yeah, so actually I'm not 100% sure what those uh, microservice means. What what, uh, what do you, uh, what's your interpretation of those uh, microservices? Sure, sure. So what I would think of a microservice as is um, something that is uh, uh, a service that, it, that can be, oh, or, to put it in this context, a service that could uh, have a call made to it over a message broker, just a small service that... You know, uh, you know, if X needs to get done, uh, you could make a call to it over uh, whatever message broker you have. The service gets performed, and um, you know, the advantage to these sorts of services is that you know, as you module, as it, you can modularize them, and it becomes easier to scale more instances of them. Um, yeah, but I, I, you know, as I understand about the word microservices, that it. Uh, it means different things to different people, so that's part of why I brought it up. But if but if you're not even really uh, you know mm. familiar with it or comfortable discussing with it, that's totally fine. Yeah, I'm not I'm not hundred, but I think uh, sounds like is that sort of more uh, an ad hoc use of the message broker where you know you want to like uh, start up some like uh, uh, services just for like a short window of time and then you want to do some processing of uh, the message and then and then after that you can just uh, stop the service yeah Is that's that... that's exactly what I'm saying and uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just kind of wondering if if Kafka uh, serves that purpose ever yeah actually um, yeah one of the things actually uh, this actually has to do with uh, the multi-subscription model uh, that Kafka provides because one of the powerful things that we see People uh, uh, is enabled with Kafka is the ability to to do debugging on Kafka. Um, so this can happen in the production environment, but more often it happens in the sort of uh, testing or the the pre-production environment, where uh, of course you have all the applications that's written up to consume like a feed of data, but Sometimes it's actually if if the application doesn't work as expected, right? You know how do you know what went wrong? So the ability of doing multi-subscription allows you just to easily tap into like a topic, uh, use a from a command line tool or on a console where you can actually see what the data are, and uh, and then based on that potentially we we'll have a better idea where the is a problem is the you don't get the right data or there's something else in the application. Okay. So that's sort of a, like a special case of the maybe microservice that you are referring to. Sure, sounds good. Um, 
so in terms of the, I'd like to talk a, bit, a little bit more about the uh, the development of Kafka. Um, why was the Scala the language of choice? Like, did you, did, and more specifically, did you consider Erlang? Right. I think, uh, yeah, when we started this, I think Jay Kras was the first developer of Kafka. Around that point, you know, he was, uh, uh, Scala is getting a little bit popular, and he was thinking of, like, a learning Scala. So that's why uh, he picked Scala. Um, it's sort of a way of just to try it out and then see how it works. And uh, from developer's perspective, it's always like uh, interesting and exciting to try some new, like promising programming languages. Now, uh, for Scala, I think what we benefited a lot from Scala is uh, is mainly the sort of a conciseness of the syntax. Uh, we use a lot of the um, functional support on the collections, uh, which allows uh, writing code of uh, iterating collections very convenient. And because of that, if you look at the Kafka code base, um, it's actually significantly small compared with uh, some of the uh, similar system, but written in Java. And we benefit a lot of just from the Scala concise syntax. But one of the things uh, we found that's a little bit difficult with Scala, um, this actually mostly has to do with the, the clients, which is because Scala is sort of an emerging technology, uh, it's not as mature as uh, like Java in terms of like preserving uh, binary compatibility. Uh, just because it's early, in some of the early releases, uh, Scala really have to break the binary compatibility. So uh, some of the bytecode generated in an uh, early version of Scala uh, won't be able to run on a new version of Scala, right? So this actually creates some problem for upgrading our clients because uh, uh, a lot of our clients, maybe they are, of course, using Kafka because of that they have a Scala dependency, but they may use some other components uh, which could also be Scala dependent. Um, maybe we're dragging a different version of Scala. Now, if the Scala version is not compatible, then it just makes the upgrading of those clients very painful. So that's sort of one of the things that we find is a bit hard with Scala. So we're trying to address this issue uh, by sort of a, uh, rewriting the client components uh, just in pure Java. Uh, so hopefully this uh, will still al allow us to get most of the benefit from using the concise syntax in Scala, but at the same time makes the client uh, upgrade a little bit easier going forward. That's great. Um, so this has been a great discussion of Kafka. Where can listeners go to learn more about Kafka or uh, maybe even your your work on the project? Yeah, I think the best place to do that, of course, is uh, just go to our website. So if you search Kafka in our web, uh, in just in Google, I think Kafka probably is uh, Apache Kafka is probably the first or the second link. So there, uh, it has uh, some documentation that describes uh, what Kafka is and uh, how Kafka is designed for, and uh, some of the examples of how to use our APIs. And you can download the code, and there's a quick start that you can follow, just try it out. And from that web page, we also have like a link to 
uh, our Jira system in Apache. Um, if you are interested in contributing, there uh, you can just search for some of the newbie labels in the Jira system. Um, that probably will give you some like a low hanging fruit uh, that you can uh, give it a try. And uh, we also have uh, like a, a wiki that describes some of the future uh, release plans and uh, future features. So those are like a more uh, substantial development work that's required. Um, so if you are like a more experienced uh, contributor to Kafka, some of the future projects may be of interest to you. Right now, some of the new things that are coming out of Kafka land, one is we are in the process of rewriting some of those uh, consumer uh, APIs, uh, as I mentioned, to, uh, to, to reduce, to, to remove the Scala dependency and uh, to just make the API uh, more feature complete and uh, better performing. Another thing that's coming, down, uh, that's coming up soon is the security support in Kafka. Uh, this includes you know, probably authentication and maybe sending some of the data in an encrypted way. We also have thoughts on how to sort of protect Kafka in a multi-tenant environment um, so hopefully different users don't um, affect each other, especially if one of the application um, had a bug and becomes like a runaway user. So we have some thoughts on how to use a quota system to, to prevent things like that from happening. So all those information um, can be found on our main uh, our Apache website and we also have like an Apache mailing list for both the user and developer and uh, if you're interested you can just subscribe to those mailing lists and uh, get a feed of what's happening in the Kafka world. That's great. Alright, well uh, Jun Rao, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Radio. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot Jeff. Okay, alright, you have a great day. You too. Alright, thanks Jun. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To support us, you can advertise SE Radio by clicking the Dig, Reddit, Delicious, or Slashdot buttons on the site, or by talking about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your own blog. If you have feedback specific to an episode, please use the commenting feature on the site so that other listeners can respond to your comments as well. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks again for your support.